Good morning, everybody. We are going to continue our series in 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter 3. We're going to start in verse 9, uh, verses 9 through 12 this morning. And this is, I want to remind us, what do those three words say under 1 and 2 Peter? Victory and trials. So this is the theme of these letters. This is what Peter is writing to the church. He's saying, look, I know things are tough, but I want to remind you of the encouragement of Christ. I want to remind you of the blessing of your salvation, of the hope of it. I want to remind you of a victorious life in Jesus. Even in the midst of difficult things, here's what that looks like. And these verses that we're going to look at today, really, Peter is laying out three very practical elements of the Christian life in the midst of a hostile, unbelieving world. Because if you remember, when we talked about the theme, when we explained what he's getting at with this letter, he says, when we live victoriously in and for Jesus in the midst of difficult times, that actually evangelizes the hostile world. And so in these verses, he really lays out three specific examples of that, which are, are just a wonderful thing for us to behold. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to read God's Word and, and dive into it, see what He has for us. And, and the hope is that this will be a continuation of our worship as we engage with the Lord. So if you'll join me in prayer. Father, we thank You for how good You are. We thank You for just everything about you, for your sovereignty, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, for the opportunity to be a part of your church. May you be pleased, may you be glorified in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to do something a little different this morning. We had an elder meeting this past week. We were talking about just why we do church, how we do church. Um, and I didn't really grow up in a church that did this all the time. Sometimes I was in a church that did, sometimes I wasn't. So it's not necessarily my habit. But some of the elders talked about the, the appreciation they have for when a church would stand out of reverence for Scripture. And I was like, that's awesome. So this morning, I invite you to stand as we read God's Word in respect for the words of our King. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You may be seated. So like I said at the beginning, in these verses, we see that Peter lays out three very specific behaviors for the Christian in the unbelieving world. So this is part of, remember, we've been looking in this section that began all the way back with having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. And we looked at, okay, so by purifying our souls through obedience to God's word, it affects our internal character and our internal behavior. It affects our relationship within families. It affects our relationship within the church, the family of Christ. And now Peter is coming to, in this same vein of thought, it affects your relationship with the world around you, with the unbelieving world who is observing you. And if we think that the unbelieving world isn't interested in the church, how many times have you heard people criticize the church? 
Non-Christians. I mean, how many times have you heard politicians, newscasters, athletes, actors, authors, celebrities, people in your own life criticize the behavior of the church? Yeah? Okay, so we can either get discouraged by that, or we can say, hey, they're paying attention. They're watching us. They're listening to what we say. What an opportunity we have to witness to them, because whether or not they want to admit it, they're watching. And so we have to keep in mind these verses because Peter lays out, okay, with the unbelieving world watching you, what do you need to live like? And the first thing we see that should define the Christian's relationship with the unbelieving world is that, church, we have to be non-vindictive. We have to be loving to the outside, hostile, unbelieving world. We should be, we are called to be, we are meant to be a blessing to the unbelieving, hostile world. Let me reread verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. That's a word that means insulting, mocking, making fun of, deriding, derision, scorn, contempt. He says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Who is responsible for setting the standards of right and wrong? Universal standards of right and wrong. Who has been tasked, who is responsible for setting the standards of truth? God. Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Scripture makes it clear that God has taken care of establishing the standards of right and wrong. Okay, well, who's responsible for convicting? Ooh, I want to do that. I get to do that. Nope. Holy Spirit. John 14, Jesus makes it very clear. Holy Spirit's taking charge of the conviction. He's got that covered. Okay, well then, we, we'll sit in judgment. We'll use God's standards of right and wrong. We'll use the Holy Spirit's conviction, and then we'll get to be the ones. We get to judge. That's our responsibility. Nope. Matthew 25, Jesus makes it pretty clear that he's got that covered. So the world does not need the church to establish the standards of right and wrong. God's plan does not rely on us convicting the unbelieving heart. We are not asked to sit on the judgment throne. We are not asked to make the final say, the final call. Church, we have been tasked with witnessing and loving. That's our responsibility. If you wake up and you're like, man, I got to set the standards of right and wrong for the world and I got to make sure they know how wrong they are, I've got great news for you. You can lay that aside. That's a heavy thing. You don't have to pick that up every morning. We have been called to witness and love. We have been recalled to reflect Jesus to the unbelieving, hostile world. That's the extent of our responsibility. And what a privilege that is. What a joy that is. I don't get why we would want to lay that aside for the heavy weight of judgment. 1 Samuel 16, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. I don't have the wisdom to judge someone's eternity. You don't have the wisdom to judge someone's eternity. I don't have the platform to convict all, what are we up to, 6 billion, 7 billion people? I don't have that kind of reach. You don't have that kind of reach. I don't care how many followers you have on Twitter. You can't convict the whole world. 
You'll burn yourself out trying. You and I have been called to love and witness and reflect Jesus where he has placed us. We can do that. We can go after that. Consider these passages, Jeremiah 29, 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it's in its welfare you will find your welfare. Scripture makes it clear that we are exiles from heaven. We are sojourners in this life, travelers passing through. We are the heavenly exiles who should be seeking the blessing of the city where we are in exile. 1 Corinthians 5, 12-13, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. If the church was half as concerned with checking our own selves as we were with checking the world, I think we'd be in a much different situation. If the church put half the energy into looking like a righteous, just church, like the bride of Christ as we're meant to be, as we did with making sure the unbelieving world conformed to God's standards, I think we'd be in a much different place. This is what we have been called to. Consider Luke 6, starting in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, not tolerate, not ignore, not walk past on the street and hope they don't make eye contact. Bless, pray for, love, active. This is not passive behavior. This is not, okay, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and hopefully we don't interact. Because when we do fireworks happen, this is, no, I will seek out those who persecute me, who curse me. I will pray for them. I will love them. I will bless them. This is what Jesus calls his bride to. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Kind to the ungrateful. Loving to those who don't love us. Blessing those who revile us, who curse us, who insult us, who belittle us, who demean us. Why? Because this is what God has done and does daily for us. Let's use our imagination. You know, I love to use our imagination. This one's an easy one. Anybody ever been to a lake? Yep, you seen a body of water bigger than a bathtub? Good. You are fully qualified to engage in this imagination. So we're having a church picnic. We're at one of the lakes, we're at one of the reservoirs, and we're hanging out, we're having a church picnic, it's going great. And we hear sounds of distress in the water. So we all rush down to the beach, we're standing on the shore, and we see someone drowning. 
What is going to bless that drowning person? If you and I stand on the shore and theorize about why they're drowning, you know what? It's because they stopped teaching swimming in schools. This is what they get. This is the education system's fault. I blame the schools. No, I don't blame the schools. I bet that person grew up in a single parent house. I bet they grew up in a non-nuclear family. They didn't have parents who loved and taught them swimming. It's the parents' fault. It's the family's fault. It's society's fault for devaluing the family that would have taught that person swimming. Yeah, it might be that. Or it might be, did you catch that interview so-and-so did last night? You heard how he mocked swimming. I mean, you look at the music, you look at the movies, you look at pop culture, how all of our celebrities and icons just bash swimming. No wonder nobody's interested in it today. It's pop culture's fault. It's the politician's fault. If they passed more laws about swimming, this wouldn't happen. Yeah, but you and I, we know better. We would have never gone so far out if we didn't know how to swim. We would never put ourselves in that position. Have we done anything to bless that drowning person? What if we're right? Sam, I'm right though. It is the school's fault. It is the politician's fault. It is the family's fault. I'm right. Great. Is your rightness helping that drowning person? What would help the drowning person? What if we threw them a life preserver? What if we linked arms and we went out into the water to get them? You think that would bless the drowning person? The blood of Jesus shed for me. Man, the only reason you and I as believers aren't out there dying is because Jesus' blood paid our penalty. So why is the church so content to stand on the shore and theorize about why people are drowning instead of doing something about it? Why are we so content to stay in our holy huddles and say, oh, good thing I'm not drowning. We've identified the fault. I hope somebody does something. Man, get in the water. Save the drowning person. Throw them a life preserver. Make an effort to reach them. Bless them. This is what we have been called to. And the example is silly when we talk about swimming, but that's the language that we use when we talk about salvation. We are so eager to assign blame instead of saying, wait, what can I do about this? The church is called to bless the hostile, unbelieving world around us. And we'll circle back to how exactly we do that. But our action should be done with love towards that world. And the second thing we see that he lays out is pure, honest speech. In verse 10, after he goes on, so in verse 9 he says, do not revile, do not repay reviling for reviling. They insult you, they mock you, they belittle you, they abuse you verbally, good fine, you don't do it in return. And he goes on and he says in verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Matthew 15, 10 through 18, Jesus speaking. And he called the people to him and he said, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. 
And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James 3, 6 through 11, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Listen to these next two verses. With it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? If I use my tongue, if I use my mouth to sing the praises of God on Sunday, and then on Monday I use that same mouth to bash people who don't believe what I do, I'm a pointless spring. I'm a spring that wants to pretend like it's producing fresh water, but is also spewing out salt water. We have to guard our speech about the unbelieving world. I'm not saying agree with them. I'm not saying affirm lies. I'm not saying acquiesce to evil. We stand for integrity. We stand for truth. We have a responsibility to truth. That is our calling. But in that, there is not room for reviling or mocking or insulting or scorn or contempt. Ephesians 4.29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Wait a minute, Sam. I'm familiar with Ephesians 4. He's talking about the inner church relationships. He's right. He is. You're right. Well done. So let's think about this. Who are we most likely to revile and insult the world around us to? Mike and Sarah invite Adeline and I over for a cookout. They've got some other friends there. I don't know them. Hey, this is Jane and Joe. I'm going to watch what I say around Jane and Joe, right? I don't know them. I don't know what they believe. I don't know what job they have. I'm going to be careful with my speech. Mike and I, fellow Christians, I know we think alike on most things. He and I are just hanging out. I mean, is it entirely inconceivable? Can you not wrap your mind around Christians having a conversation of, hey, how you doing? Yeah, good, man. And you see what that clown said this week? and insert whatever politician, insert whatever athlete, insert whatever musician, insert whatever non-Christian person you want. You see what this clown said? I know, what a joke. Why does anyone vote for him? Why would anyone cheer for his sports team? Why would you watch their movies? Why, like, what a, just what a, what a terrible person. Man, I can't stand that dude. Yeah. All right, hey, you have a good day. Yeah, you too, man. I mean, is that, is that impossible for us to wrap our mind around Christians having that conversation with one another? Okay, so what did I say in that conversation that gave grace to Mike as a follower of Christ? When I revile people 
to my brothers and sisters in Christ, when I insult them, when I slander them, yeah, I'm doing it in a safe place because I know they agree with me and we can feel better about ourselves by belittling the unbelieving world. How do my words build up the church? How does my speech edify Christ? So yeah, I included a passage talking about the way Christians talk to one another because we have to think about how we talk to one another about the unbelieving world. Is our speech pure and honest? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it edifying? Does it give grace? When you get done talking to a fellow believer, are they left thinking, man, Jesus is great. I want to go do great things for Him. Is our speech with one another building up the church as we consider the unbelieving world? Peter lays this out for people. And then he brings it to an idea that kind of wraps it all up. He says, seek peace. Let him turn away in verse 11. Peter says, let him turn away the believer. Let the believer turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Those are not slow words. Those are not passive words. When he says, let him turn away from evil, let him seek peace. He uses a word, zeteo. And it means to look aggressively for something to get to the bottom of it. Like this isn't a quick, I can't find my keys. Oh, they're not on the counter. Okay, I'll just give up. This is, no, I will not stop until I find what I am looking for. This is a relentless seeking. This is a passionate, energetic, driven seeking And then it's not just seeking. He says, let him seek peace and pursue it. And that word that he uses for pursue is the same word that you would use for a hunter running down his prey. See, now when we go hunting, we sit in our blind and we've got a range of 150 yards, 200 yards, right? Like whatever we're using, we don't have to run down anything. Back then, if you went out hunting, you had a spear and a sling. You want to bring that deer down for dinner? Man, I hope you've got your track shoes on. This is the word that Peter uses. Pursue it. Chase it down aggressively with an intention to capture it, with an intention to grab it and make it yours. This is what Peter says we must do with peace. So as I'm prepping for this, I I naturally, I come to the question, okay, then what is the peace? I've been told to be in relentless pursuit. Those words sound familiar? I've been told to be in relentless pursuit of peace. What is this peace that he's talking about? So I started like, right, I want to understand it. And first I was like, you know what? I've got a pretty good definition of peace. And I gave my definition of peace that I thought I'm called to seek and pursue. And then I started studying and I was like, ooh, I'm at the 10 yard line. I did not cross the goal line. That's interesting. I'm missing a key component of biblical peace. Huh. I got home that night. Hey, Addie, define peace. What is a peacemaker? So she gives me an answer. Great answer. Very similar to my answer. And I was like, okay, you're missing the same thing I was missing. So then I send a text to the elders. I send a text to Mike. I send a text to pastors. I, I just start texting people. No context. So this is what it's like to be my friend. You just get random texts. And it says, hey, without looking anything up, define peacemaker. And I'm getting great answers back. I mean, people are saying fantastic things, but we're all missing that last 10%. We're all stopping at the 10-yard line. 
And I was like, this is fascinating to me. Maybe this is what has caused us to then miss out on not repaying evil for evil. Maybe this is what has caused us to miss out on pure and honest speech. So I want us to unpack this word peace so that we understand as a church what we are called to aggressively, relentlessly seek and pursue. Because once I understood this, I, I mean, my jaw was hitting the desk. I loved this week. It was so much fun diving into God's Word in this depth of detail. Because again, let me reiterate, peacemaking is not ignoring evil. Peacemaking is not pretending like we don't have our own opinion. I'm not asking you to just pretend like you don't have your own thoughts. The Bible's not asking you to pretend like you don't care about different issues. It's not saying, hey, just turn a blind eye to this. Hey, just shut up to get along with everybody. That's not what peacemaking is. That's not what Peter is talking about. So what is he talking about? The word he uses is irene. And we're going to circle back to it. So Peter uses irene, this word peace. And what irene means is it means to rejoin something that has been separated. It's reconciliation, but of a pure wholeness. This is a completeness. This isn't partial, you know, okay, arbitration. We agreed to settle our differences and go our separate ways. So the word that Peter uses is talking about permanent, long-lasting, like not temporary. This is permanent rejoining of what was separated. Which naturally made me think of Matthew 5, 9, where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And I'm like, okay, so I'm called to be in relentless pursuit of peace. Jesus said, blessed are the people who make this. What's Jesus talking about? And so I start diving into what Jesus says there. And that's from a word, irenapoyao, which is a derivative of irene, the word that Peter uses. And what that means is someone who makes peace, who, who reconciles, who makes reconciliation. I was like, okay, does the, does the Bible talk about this anywhere else? What else does God say about this concept? And that led me, and this should lead us as we study, to Colossians 1.20. Same word, Colossians 1.20. And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, now I'm getting somewhere. Now I'm getting to an understanding. So Jesus established the precedent of making peace. How? Through the blood of his cross. So what did Jesus making peace do through the blood of his cross? He reconciled sinners to God. This is where this idea all boils down to. Colossians 1.20. Where we see what Jesus did in making peace. Okay. So then when you start to work backwards, now that I've dug down all the way to the bottom, now that I've dug down to the root of this concept of making peace, I arrive at Jesus reconciling sinners to God. So now as we start to work our way back up and I start to study the words that are built on that original word, we get to Jesus speaking, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. People who do this. And what it means is someone who declares God's terms, which makes someone whole. It's evangelism. It's this is a lost person. This is a drowning person. I will declare to them 
what makes them whole with God. So the answers that I was getting, the answers that I gave, they're, they're parts of peacemaking. To be full of the Spirit, to be walking in step with the Spirit, absolutely, great answer, that's part of it. To pursue righteousness, to sow seeds of righteousness and grace, absolutely, that's part of peacemaking. To be in step with the world, not that we're looking like the world, but that we are walking alongside the world to love them, absolutely, that's part of it. So we're all giving great answers, but what I came to this week is that if we are pursuing peace that is not centered and founded on evangelism, on seeing that lost person reconciled to Jesus, we're stopping short. If we reduce peace to just an emotional state without looking at the eternal implications of that person's life, we have missed the end zone of peacemaking. So when we are called to seek and pursue peace, what Peter is saying is, hey, we're talking about your relationship with the unbelieving world. We're talking about the context of people who don't know God. Seek their reconciliation with the Lord. Pursue their reconciliation with the Lord. I mean, take that imagery of a hunter pursuing his prey. What if all of us took ownership of our neighborhoods? What if all of us took ownership of where we work, where our kids play sports, and we said, okay, their salvation is my prey. I will track it down. I will put every effort into pointing them to God, to seeing them reconcile. We cannot save people. Don't get it twisted. I cannot get anyone into heaven on my own efforts. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to convict. It is the work of Jesus to save, to transform, to redeem. But we cannot deny that we have been given a part to play in this. We're going to read Romans 10 this week, and you're going to see how will they believe in whom they have never heard? How will they hear if no one says it to them? We have been called to play a part in this to be the ones who seek their peace, their reconciliation with the Lord, and to pursue it. And yeah, he's still talking about that hostile, unbelieving world that's going to make fun of you every step of the way. He's talking about the people who it won't be easy to love. But we're fooling ourselves if we think we're easy to love. I'm delusional if I think that God, you know, looked at me and he was like, well, Sam's different from everybody else. I mean, the rest of the world, they're a bunch of sinners, but that Sam guy, he's all right. What did Paul say? Jesus came to die for sinners, and I'm chief among them. Any one of us could have written that line. So we have peace with God. And now we are called to seek that and pursue that for the unbelieving world. Listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. James 3.18 A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When the Bible talks about a harvest, when Jesus talks about a harvest, what's He talking about? A harvest of people. He says the, the fields are ready, but the workers are few. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to raise up harvest workers. What verse do we have on one of our posters out there? We will reap in due time if we do not give up. 
Harvest is eternal. We are called to be eternally driven and minded, relentless pursuers of the harvest, of peace. This defines the Christian's relationship with the unbelieving world. Our greatest desire for the person we like least should be to worship with them in heaven one day. That famous person you can't stand, athlete, politician, musician, they come on TV and you're half tempted to throw your TV out the window, but you also make yourself listen so you can complain about them later, which has got to be really mentally healthy for us. That person, it should be our greatest desire to worship with them in heaven one day. The most humbling place God ever brought me was where I switched from hating the man who abused my brother to saying, man, I hope I get to see him in heaven. And I do. That would be awesome. That would be peace. That would be reconciliation. That is what I am called to. That is what we are called to. And Jesus modeled this for us perfectly. Consider John 8, because really the summation of this is live like Jesus. This is John 8, 1 through 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, Let him who is without stone among you be the first to throw a stone, or him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Who was in the wrong in that, in that interaction? Who was wrong? Pharisees. What about the woman? Was she not wrong to be engaged in adultery? Yeah. They were both wrong. Who did Jesus show mercy to? The woman? Yeah. What about the religious leaders who Jesus could have easily put on blast? Oh, you want to throw a stone? Uh, Brian, these are your sins. I'm just going to remind the crowd of them. Oh, Lisa, you want to throw a stone? Yeah, here's how you sinned just yesterday. I mean, Jesus could have torn those people apart, but he didn't. He was merciful and loving to both. Who did Jesus compromise truth for? Nobody. He didn't sacrifice truth. He spoke purely. He spoke honestly. He offered peace. He says, I don't condemn you. Now stop sinning. I mean, Jesus lays out 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12 in one interaction. It's beautiful. It's incredible. And it's our honor to engage in this same ministry. Anybody remember the story of the three American college students, I think they were in France a couple years ago, 
where there was a terrorist on the train and the, the three college students stopped him. You guys remember that? Yeah, they got a movie about them. Like our world loves a hero. We love someone who steps in and saves a dying person. Friends, that's what we have a chance to engage in every day. I mean, we have a chance to do this. God has given us this honor. God has given us this privilege. And I want to share a story about my experience with this just two weeks ago. Because it's easy to hear this and, and go one of two directions. So two weeks ago, we had a garage sale. A teacher comes up. And I don't know if she's a teacher at a time, but as we get talking, learn she's a teacher. She's using her own money to buy stuff for her students for the next school year at a garage sale. So Adeline and I are like, man, give her everything we've got. We, we are loading her up. She's like, I don't have the cash for this. And we're like, who cares? Like, take it. This is for the students. Like, this is awesome what you're doing, right? So she walks down the driveway and just like overflowing with stuff. And there's another guy at the garage sale. And he says to me, he's like, wow, man, that was awesome. I can't believe you would do something like that for someone you don't know. And in my supreme holiness, you know what my response to him was? Yeah, cool. If you have any questions, I'll be over there reading. That dude opened the door wide open for me to proclaim Jesus. And I missed it. I, I'm, I've prayed regularly since then, like, God, please bring someone into his life who won't be as blind as I was. But you know what that made me do? when I realized that I missed the opportunity, I could go one of two directions. I could listen to the enemy and say, wow, I am terrible at this. I am self-centered, I am imperfect, I am not good at this, I'm gonna give up. Or I could say, okay, that, that one got by me, but the next one won't. I've shared with you, Dad, you've, you've shared the gospel with more people than anyone I know. Have you ever missed opportunities to share the gospel with people? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Does that stop you? No. Think of baseball. A batter strikes out. Does he retire? Oh, shoot. I struck out. Well, I guess my career's over. No. It's all right. Cool. Next at bat, I'm going to smack it out of the park. So church... Yeah, this is hard times, or hard at times. Yeah, this is challenging at times. Yeah, we might be tempted to say, I blew it, I missed it, I messed it up, I can't do this. And we're tempted to quit. Or we lay aside every sin that so easily entangles and we run this race with perseverance. We decide to be Christians in relentless pursuit of the kingdom of God in relentless pursuit, seeking after, hunting down the peace of the fallen world around us, seeking with all that is in us to see them reconciled to Jesus. That's the church I want to be. That's the church Peter calls the people to be. Let us be such a church. So this week, let's read Matthew 5, Romans 10, and Romans 12. Look for the sermon themes. Look for what we, we talked about this morning in these chapters. How do these passages lead us to pray as we seek to be a praying church? Not just a church that sometimes prays, but a church of prayer, a people of prayer. And then the application part, we're going to bless the city this week. 
Do something nice for a stranger. What do those verses say? Somebody who can't repay you. Somebody who's not grateful. I don't care. Why? Because Peter didn't care. It wasn't about, well, I do this just so you say thank you. It was, I do this to honor God. So we're all going to do something nice for a stranger this week. And if they ask about it, don't be like Sam at the garage sale. Tell them about Jesus. And then ask a neighbor, ask a coworker, how can I pray for you? I care about you. I love you. I want to bless you. I want to pray for you. But this week, we are going to very deliberately target blessing the city as we seek to be the church that Peter writes about, that God calls us to be. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience, for bearing with us. Thank you for filling us with the Holy Spirit, for empowering us for this. God, when we're tempted to say, I can't do this, remind us that we were never meant to do this on our own. Your word says that you are able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Lord, may we be such a church that is surrendered to you, that is living for you, that is pursuing the reconciliation of the lost world with you. Teach us how to love the unbelieving world. Guard our lips. Guard our speech. May we talk about those who don't believe in you in such a way that blesses them and loves them, that builds up the church. We need you for these things. Lead us in them, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.